Hebrews chapter 12. And I'm going to read verses 1 and 2, even though for the most part we're only going to be looking at verse 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Lord, we come humbly to you and ask for your hand of mercy and grace to be upon us, in that you would fill us with your spirit tonight, that we might hear these words from your sacred book, your holy Bible, and that they might be the meat for our soul, the very food that we need in spiritual sustenance, Lord. In this time, we celebrate your birth, and during this time, we're distracted by so many things in our culture and in our day. We're thankful, Lord, that there is still so much a part of the cultural celebration of Christmas that does include you. And Lord, there are many areas that we don't, and we pray as we want to observe this holiday in a distinctly Christian manner, that our minds would be focused on you, our affections would be poured out towards you, and that you would be glorified with how we celebrate your birth, with who we celebrate it with, and that we would always have the why we celebrate foremost in our thinking. We pray these things and we ask tonight that with the hearing of your word that we would receive it with eager hearts and eager minds anticipating to walk out of these doors tonight knowing you better and loving you more than we did when we came in, Jesus. And to that end, we praise you We thank you, and we ask your blessing upon this sermon. In your name, Jesus, amen. We're called by the writer of the Hebrews to endurance. We're called by the writer of Hebrews to keep on keeping on. We're called by the writer of Hebrews to press on, to persevere, to not give up. He's clearly aware that there are so many things in life that distract, that take away, that hinder our continual progression on with Christ. And so he, after giving this lengthy illustration with all of these people who have been faithful followers of God throughout history, comes to the hearers of this Hebrew sermon and say, look, we have all of these people who witness to us this life can be lived by faith. Now you lay aside the weight 
and the sin which clings so closely to us. And last week, you'll remember, we looked at the weight, which he doesn't define or qualify as sin. But certainly we know in life there are plenty of things that distract us and get in the way from our following the Lord. And those things are different for each and every one of us. And we call those categories of Christian liberty, right? Where for some people they have completely removed all kinds of things from their life and society. And we might look at them and see that they're odd and quirky like an Amish kind of person. And then there are other people who seem to follow the Lord and love Jesus and yet look a lot like the culture in the way that they dress and act and function and interact with the culture. But there are certain things that are weights that we need to set aside. There are sins that cling so closely. In fact, the Bible says that we as sinners, as people, we don't even realize how desperately wicked we are. The Bible tells us that we don't even know how bad we are ourselves. In fact, who can know our hearts? Not even the spirit that is within us, meaning our souls. We don't even realize it. I mean, how often have you done something and then looked back on that event and go, what was I thinking? How did I do? What in the what? We did what? What? And we even surprise ourselves. And that's because we think better of ourselves than we ought to. More highly of ourselves than we should. Sin clings closely. Both sin and the weights that distract us from the Lord are things that we need to lay aside and set aside in order to run this race that is set before us. And it is an endurance race. Life is long. Life is hard. Life is a struggle. Life is good, but it is not easy. God never said it would be smooth sailing, but we have set before us the promise that it will be worth it. As we live in light of Jesus. And so the great motivation that the writer of Hebrews gives us for this endurance race is not you're going to have your best life. It is not you're going to achieve wealth. It's not you're going to be healthy. It's not you're going to accomplish everything you set your hand to. The encouragement for us is not in an action, not even really in a destination. It's in a person, Jesus Christ our Lord. So as we might say, run with endurance the Boston Marathon because you will receive fame and you will receive financial compensation and you might receive other benefits that come along with it as well. Instead, the writer of Hebrews tells us, run the race of life with endurance because of Jesus. Jesus is the greatest and the best treasure. And I will tell you this, if you do not see Jesus as the greatest and best treasure, if you do not see Jesus as the great and ultimate and the thing to be grasped above all other things, then you are living a life and you are worshiping a God other than the Christian God. 
Jesus is first and foremost. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is the greatest, the chief, the best of all beings. Jesus, the very uncreated God, became man and took on human flesh. That's what we're celebrating right now, right? That's what Christmas is all about. In fact, look at Luke with me. Luke chapter 1. Great text. Luke chapter 1. Oh, so good. Luke chapter 1. Glance down with me to verse 26, right? It's a passage we're all familiar with. Angel Gabriel shows up to Mary. It says in verse 26, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin who was betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. He greeted her. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Well, she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting is this. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus is the great king and fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises. Now our immediate context as we're reading through this book is the Hebrews who were going through a serious persecution there in Rome and they were leaving the faith. They were turning back to Judaism instead of following after Christ. And the entire argument for the whole book is Jesus is greater than anything else they're going to go back to. You're going back to something inferior. Yes, there might be a little bit less pain. Yes, it might be a little bit more comfortable for your existence. But you're reverting to something inferior and it doesn't make sense to do that. And so when we come to this particular text and we say, first of all, looking to Jesus... We are saying you're looking to the very king who is the king of kings and lord of lords who sits on the throne of David and reigns over the house of Jacob forever and ever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Where else are you going to go that's better than that? Who will you follow that is superior to that? We look to Jesus And he is the best and the greatest of all beings. He is the greatest man who has ever lived. He is the one who is of men, called the best of men, called the son of the most high God. He calls himself oftentimes the son of man, signifying his superiority in all of mankind. The Bible teaches us in the book of Hebrews that he was a man 
who was in all ways tempted with sin like we are. We just looked at laying aside every weight and the sin that clings to us so closely. Jesus was tempted in every one of these ways. Every way that a person can be tempted, Jesus was tempted and yet was without sin. So that when he was exalted, he was exalted as the perfect, ultimate man. Now he was more than that, wasn't he? Mark chapter 8. It says that he began to teach them, verse 31, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed. And then after three days, he would rise again. Well, he said this plainly. But Peter afterwards took him aside and began to rebuke him. (laughs) Oh, Peter. (laughs) But he turned and he said to his disciples, he rebuked Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. We could say, I think, rightly, that the Hebrews were suffering from this similar kind of thinking that Peter was. Peter saw Jesus as king of kings for sure. He saw him as the great and glorious Messiah, absolutely. But he didn't see him as the Savior, the Lamb of God who was going to take away the sins of the world. And so when Jesus began to talk about his own death, Peter struggled with that and said, no, 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 and began to rebuke him. Well, the Hebrews were struggling in the same manner. They were struggling with believing that Christ and all that he did was worth the pain that I'm going through. And the writer to the Hebrews says, yes, it is worth it. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, because you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but rather on the things of men. And the Hebrews were definitely setting their mind on the things of men. So then Jesus, he calls the entire crowd around him here in verse 34. And he calls to him and he says to the crowd, along with his disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, lay aside every weight and the sin which so clings to, clings to us so closely, take up your cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but yet forfeits his life? What can a man give in return for his life? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him... The Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said this to them, Truly there are some of you standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God as it has come with its power. And then he goes on and tells us the story of the transfiguration, where we see Christ in all of his glory. 
But here we're told to look to Jesus. You want endurance in life? You want to keep on? We have to keep looking back to Jesus. Because if we don't have Jesus as our goal, if we don't have Jesus as our chief, our primary affection, the thing that captivates our soul, the very person and being that enlivens us and encourages us and motivates us to life, then we will find whatever other motivation we have to be deficient and let us down, and we will constantly struggle with giving up, throwing in the towel, and turning back and going another direction. Jesus is the best. Jesus is the greatest because he is everything he claimed to be. And he is everything God the Father promised he would be before he even came. Jesus fulfilled all the promises. Jesus fulfilled all the law. Jesus fulfilled all the prophets. He is the very thing. All of history was directed towards. And when he came and he lived, now everything that comes after him points back towards him in history. Jesus is the center of everything. And he is our great God our great king, and what in the world could we possibly find greater than Jesus in terms of looking to him to motivate us to live this life of faith? He goes on here in Hebrews chapter 12 to say, he is both the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now, the point of Hebrews 11 was to show us, define for us what faith was, And then to give us so many illustrations of what that faith looked like as these people lived consistently with the promise that God had made for them. Meaning that they trusted God. Now they struggled, they were sinners, we all understand that. But one thing they did was continually look to Jesus, pardon me, look to the promises that God gave concerning Jesus. Now they didn't know his name yet, but they believed God. Now we look back, we look to Jesus, and he is the founder, he's the one who gave us our faith in the beginning, and he's the perfecter of our faith. He saves us, founder of our faith. He pulled us out of the depths of despair. He took us from sin, desperation, death, darkness, and gave us light and life in him. He is the founder of our faith. He has given us this faith, and we now trust in him. And he did not get us into this place of believing in him to then leave it up to us. He is also the perfecter of our faith, or completer of our faith, some translations say. He saved us, and he's going to get us to where he intended us to, do, to get us. He saved us and we're going to get to his heaven. So now as we live this life, we can trust him. So when things are difficult and hard and my faith wavers, I can go back to this, go, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. This struggle that I'm going through right now is not greater than the faith that God has given me. It's not greater than the salvation I have in Jesus. And if Jesus saved me, which he did, most certainly I believe, 
then he didn't save me to just get me here. It feels very dark here. It feels very difficult here. But Jesus sees not only the end from the beginning, but has ordained the end from the beginning. And if he has me here, and this is the place I'm struggling, I can be confident that it was not too hard for me to be saved by his blood. Therefore, he will get me to where he intends to get me. You see what great motivation that is? I was dead in trespassing sins. What? I, I, I deal in the funeral business. I'm around people who have passed all day, literally all day long. I never open up that refrigerator door and expect somebody to sit up or be standing there going, good, I was waiting for somebody to come get me out of here. When they pass, they are gone. What is more, what the most difficult thing then would be bringing somebody back from the dead. Jesus not only did this physically, but more importantly for us, he has promised to do it spiritually for those who have faith and trust in him. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians that we are dead in trespasses and sins. We have no hope. We are by nature children of wrath that we follow the course of this world and we follow the pattern of Satan. That's natural for us. What God does is he invades us in our deadness. He gives us new life in him through the power of the Holy Spirit as we trust in Jesus Christ and his death for mine. So that now Christ, upon dying on the cross, bore the weight of judgment I deserved. God punished Jesus as if he was me. So he could treat me as if I lived Jesus' perfect life. So when I have been saved, I have been resurrected. I have been given life. I have been raised from the dead spiritually. If God did that for me... He didn't do that for me so that just somewhere down the road I'm going to end up dying again. (laughs) He did that for me because he has a plan and a purpose. He has a call and an intention on my life. And the writer to the Hebrews is telling these people he is the author, the founder. He has saved you and he is not going to fail to get you to the end that he intends for you, beloved. That is a great motivator. When I am here in this dark place, I go, Lord, I'm struggling. I don't get why I'm here and going through what I am. But self, sometimes you have to preach to yourself. Self, The gospel says that Jesus Christ died for my sins. That those who were called will be glorified. I have been called, therefore God will get me into his heaven. Right now, I need endurance. And so where do we look? We look to Jesus. We look back to him And we preach ourselves the gospel over and over and over and over and over and over again. Again, it's one of the reasons why communion is so important every single Sunday for us. 
Because not every sermon is going to be this kind of stuff because the Bible's a big book with lots of things in it. But you see, every Sunday we gather together and we have this bread and wine prepared before us that remind us of the body and blood of Jesus Christ broken for our sin. So every single Sunday we come back and we have lay aside every weight in the sin which so clings, clings so closely to you because Christ has been offered for you. He has died for you and he will get you where he intends you to go. Here's how he did it. Who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. The joy that was set before him. Look with me at Isaiah 53. Most of you probably are very familiar with this passage. But I have read it a couple of times through this week in preparing for this. And it just is refreshment to my soul. And I hope it will be to yours as well. Let's begin with verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. We all, like sheep, we have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The joy that was set before Jesus Christ was the redemption of these sheep as he fulfilled the Father's will. So it's really twofold, right? Penultimately, we receive redemption. That he bore our griefs, he carried our sorrows. By his stripes we are healed. He was crushed for our iniquities. We turned away from him, but the Lord God laid upon him the iniquity of us all. So penultimately, we receive the redemption from Jesus Christ. That is the joy that was set before him. But even more than that, there's something greater. There is an ultimate. And that's Jesus Christ glorifying God the Father. Look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord, it was the will of the Father to crush him. He, God, the Father, has put him, Jesus Christ, to grief. When his soul, Jesus Christ, makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord, the Father, will prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Satisfaction in Jesus Christ, joy in Jesus Christ, comes from the fulfilling of the Father's will as he is crushed, as he is defeated, as he is the wrath poured out upon him, 
for our sake. So this great salvation that we have gets us saved, yes. Is our great motivator, yes. But as Jesus Christ looked to the Father to glorify him, we now in turn look to Jesus and we see him and past him we see God the Father and these two in perfect cooperation in the redemption of our souls are the great and glorious God of our worship. And he receives glory in our worshiping him. The writer of the Hebrews says, the joy that was set before Jesus motivated him to endure the cross. And he, in enduring the cross, despised the shame. Now, I I mentioned this in passing last week. That I do remember a pastor who hated this verse, this, this particular phrase here, And says, no, there was no part of the cross, there was no part of it that Jesus despised at all. Well, it says despise the shame of the cross. In Luke, here, let's look at a couple passages here. Luke chapter 20. Jesus gives this parable. It's the parable, mine has a little phrase, the wicked tenants. That's probably a okay one. It says in verse 9, he began to tell the people a parable. A man planted a vineyard and lent it out to tenants and went to another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but they also beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And yet he sent a third one, and they wounded him and cast him out. Then, verse 13, the owner of vineyard said, What shall I do? Ah, I know. I will send my own son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. They threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Of course, he's speaking about himself. He's speaking about his own impending death. And he uses this phrase, they will respect him, but they don't respect him. They put him to shame, they put him to scorn by killing him. In John chapter 1, it says that Jesus Christ came to his own, but his own did not receive him. They didn't want anything to do with him. They hated him, they despised him, they rejected him, and that hurt Last week we talked about this passage. I want to look at it right now. Look at Deuteronomy with me. Deuteronomy chapter 21. Verse 
Deuteronomy 21, beginning in verse 22. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord is giving you for an inheritance. The man who is hanged on a tree is a cursed man by God. Now, of course, we see all of the foreboding symbolism when we read Deuteronomy chapter 21. Of course, the people who originally got it wouldn't have understood it such a way. But we know that it speaks prophetically of the work of Jesus. In fact, in Galatians chapter 3, it says this. The law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You see, beloved, Jesus despised the shame, not just because his own brethren rejected him. That was certainly difficult. Don't want to minimize it. And he didn't despise the shame simply because he wasn't respected by the nation of Israel. But the true despising of the shame came when he became a curse for us. This is why he sweats great drops of blood and prays, Father, if there's any other way to do this, let this cut pass from me. This is why, because the curse from God the Father was about to be placed upon him that we deserve. Christ became a curse for us, fulfilling not only Deuteronomy chapter 21, but all of the Old Testament for our sake. You see, we, in our struggles in life, we look to Jesus, he saved us, he will perfect us, he has joy in obeying the Father's will and giving him glory, and we receive the benefit of that, and we in turn joyfully follow after the Father and worship Jesus Christ, because he endured the cross, despising the shame, the very shame that he endured, saves you and saves me from our sin. That curse. And once he has accomplished redemption, he sits down at the right hand of the throne of God. Remember how we began with the angel Gabriel telling Mary, you will have a son and he will be called the Most High and he will sit on David's throne. And sitting upon David's throne, he will rule and reign forever and ever. Do you remember that? Look with me as we close in Acts. Acts chapter 2. Acts 2 is the very first Christian sermon ever preached because the church was just established minutes before as the Holy Spirit 
came upon those in the upper room and Peter goes out and preaches. And in preaching the gospel, he preaches in a way that we don't normally hear. Listen to these words beginning in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders, signs that God did through him in your midst, you yourselves know this Jesus. He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But you crucified, you killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence forever. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. But being a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades. His flesh did not see corruption. Jesus, God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out all this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing this day. You see here, Jesus is the greatest and the best of all beings. When the angel Gabriel came to Mary, he was prophesying. He was telling Mary what was going to happen and what his life was going to culminate in. Him, namely, being King of kings and Lord of lords. You see, this great encouragement given to the Hebrews here that says we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. So lay aside in the weight and sin which cling so closely and endure. Run with endurance this race set before you. Why? Because of Jesus. Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is my friend. Jesus is my hero. Jesus is my King. And Jesus is my God. You see, this Christmas celebration that we have, we are not just cheering a baby in a manger, but we are coming before the very King of Kings and the very Lord of Lords. You see, Christmas time should be so much more than a frustrating time of running around trying to get everybody the things that they want. (laughs) Instead, it should be a time where we are 
reminded and enthralled with Jesus as being the great king and great God, the great savior of our souls. He is the best. He is the most glorious. And as we go through the rest of this Christmas season, whatever sin and whatever weight that you happen to particularly be struggling with, lay it aside. Lay it aside and look to Jesus. He's the author and perfecter of your faith. He endured so much in the saving of your soul. And he is now seated at the very right hand of the throne of God as your king, interceding on your behalf because he is faithful and what he accomplished in you, he will absolutely finish it as well. Lord, you are worthy of all our praise and all of our joy and all of our admiration and all of our worship. And so, Lord, as we sing and partake of communion and pray, Lord, we ask that these truths would settle into our soul. That we would be refreshed by them and we would walk out of here, Lord, with that mind of you, that vision of you, that great hope of you, Jesus. We thank you and we love you so much. In your name we pray, amen.